0: This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, fasten your seatbelts for a roller coaster ride through the hearts, minds, loves, hates, thoughts, fears, hopes, and dreams of Irish adolescents and prepare to be amazed.
1: <laughs> Dear Grich, August Fawchuk, telling tales. I'm Lawrence Gork.
0: And I'm Leigh
2: Heatley.
1: I will be presenting today's programme.
2: We have a really busy programme today. All of your stories and poems are sorted and ready to go.
1: Well then, let's get the show on the road. Our first story today is by our fellow presenter, Maya O'Shotnessy. It's read by Ruth Colbert.
2: Maya goes to our school, LaSalle-Rohini.
1: I hear it's a great school.
2: All the schools participating in the series are great schools.
1: That's true. It takes a lot of work from all concerned.
3: Rancho Cordova by Maya. 1925 in Rancho Cordova. Emma Jane was helping her mother cook some soup for supper. Her younger brothers were playing out in the garden. The garden was just a piece of sandy ground beside their house. Rancho Cordova was generally dry. It never really rained, so the ground was always dry and sandy-like. The houses there weren't so big or fancy either. Most houses were just big enough to shelter a family of three. Many people in Rancho Cordova were poor and homeless, living on the street. There was some helpful shelter homes for sick, injured, or people in need of food. Emma Jane and her mother cooked every day and night, while her father was out working for money, and her younger brothers went to school. Emma Jane didn't attend school because she stayed at home and helped cook and clean with her mother. Some days she would go out with her mother to the health centre and care for the injured or sick. Although Emma Jane didn't go to school, she was highly intelligent and was a great help to the sick. One evening, when the family were getting ready for the dinner that Emma Jane and mother had prepared, their father came in from work late. Today was rough, father said. Mother hadn't seemed too happy since earlier today, and she didn't seem too happy when father came in either. Mother said nothing about father's day at work. There's a letter there for you, mother said in a moody way. I shall open it after dinner. Family dinner time is more important than silly bills, father said proudly. But what he didn't know was that, that family dinner could be their last. After dinner came, it was time father opened the so called bill that had come in the post earlier that day. He slowly, carefully opened the envelope and took the letter out. Father let out a big gasp. What's wrong? Joey asked, Emma's younger brother. Father didn't reply. He just stood there with a the dead look on his face. Joey quickly ran out to the garden, where Emma Jane and her mother were hanging up the washing on the washing line. Mother, something isn't right with father, he shouted at the top of his voice. Quickly mother ran into the house, with Emma Jane right behind her to see what all the drama was. Just as they got inside, father suddenly blurted out, there's a war coming and we have to leave right away or we will be killed. The family couldn't believe what father had just told them. There was no talk of a war in the area. This was the first everyone was hearing of a war. All night, father sat in his rocking chair reading the letter. He was sent over and over. Some things in the letter he didn't want to tell his family, but he knew he had to. He had yet to tell Emma Jane that he and his wife would have to go help wounded fighters in war, and that Emma Jane, since she was the oldest child in the village, would have to take all the children away somewhere safe from Rancho Cordova. Father didn't know how Emma Jane would react to this, had no choice but to tell her. The next morning the family got ready to pack as they had to leave. Mother got all the nursing gear out so that she would help the wounded men at the best she could. Father called Emma Jane out to the garden. When father told Emma Jane the news her face dropped with worry. Where am I going to take all those children father she cried. Somewhere anywhere from here father said and walked away. That was the last Emma-Jane saw of her father until their last goodbye. Her father told her that the war would be over soon and she would be able to return to Rancho Cordova. But until then, she had to care for all of the children. Off Emma-Jane went with the children. Her job was to bring them to the woods. This was going to be a long trip. A few weeks had passed. Emma-Jane's children had built a wooden cabin that they all slept in. They would cook fish every night for dinner on the fire they built just outside the cabin. Three weeks of living in the woods and Emma Jane could tell the war had started. Every night at about half past 10, a plane would fly over. Emma Jane often wondered what the plane would have been doing heading to Rancho Cordova. It had been nearly two months since they last seen their parents and Emma Jane thought something strange was going on. For the first time in two months, a plane hadn't flew over. The next night came and still again no plane. And the next, and the next. Maybe the war is over, Emma Jane thought. The next day, while Emma Jane was cooking dinner, she heard shouting children. Happily, she laughed. At first, she thought it was her children, but as the sound got closer, she realized it wasn't. Hello, she called out, curiously. Hello, a young voice called back, who's that? Joey asked Emma-Jane. I, I don't know, Joey. Maybe I should go talk to their head leader. Off Emma-Jane went to talk to the leader of the other group. Hey, where are you guys off to? Emma-Jane asked friendly. Hey, we're heading back to Rancho Cordova, quickly shouted the leader as he tied his shoelace. Emma-Jane was shocked. What? You can't go back there. The war is still going on, Emma-Jane shrieked. Oh, haven't you heard? The war is over. We can all go back now. Emma Jane quickly looked at her children, who were standing there with little cute smiles on their faces. How great would it be if they could go back to Rancho Cordova to see their parents? Just before the leader went to walk off, Emma Jane shouted, hey, wait up, we're coming with you. The children in Emma Jane's group were delighted they were going back to see their parents and to be living happily and safe back in Rancho Cordova. Or was it actually safe at all? The end for now.
2: Our next great story is from Our Next Great School. It's His Princess and it comes through us from Our Lady of Mercy
4: College Beaumont. His Princess by Anya Marie. This is a fictional story that I wrote inspired by the experiences that some people in Ireland may face today. I remember it well. I would raid my wardrobe and find the longest most pink gown and try it on. I would dance, twirl and whirl around the kitchen. Every day, at 11.11, I would wish for the same thing, to be reunited with my king. I had heard stories about him from a young age. He was strong and brave, everything a loving father should be. I can still recall sitting snug under my duvet, imagining what he would be like. I told myself he would be tall, his eyes would be blazing with life. He would have muscled arms that would scoop me up and act as a shield to all my problems. Every night I would close my eyes tightly and whisper all the adventures we would have when my father, my hero, returned home. I'd never felt it strange that my mother never mentioned him. I remember awkwardly waddling up to her. I pulled her apron strings. I must have been about five. I'd been crying because all the other fathers had picked their daughters up from school. I assured myself that things of that nature were unimportant. I assured myself that Daddy was fighting for our country, just like Granny had told me. My mother looked down at me with tired eyes. Mammy, I began, when's Daddy coming home from the army? She quickly dismissed me with a shake of her head and told me to go and play. Even at the tender age of five, I noticed a lone tear fall from those tired eyes. It was at the age of 16 that I gave up any fantasies that I had about my father. I had accepted that, if I was to be honest with myself, My father was more like a big film sequel, highly anticipated, but ultimately disappointing. I prayed he would be safe, but nothing could erase the pride that my father was doing something so noble, so I continued to dream about the reunion. I still to this day do not know why I decided to clean the attic. That dark, dusty, dreaded attic was territory that only my mother explored. I noticed the unassuming box straight away. It seemed to be calling me. I was drawn to it. I clambered over broken toys and forgotten photo albums. I carefully picked up the Sue box and examined its contents. I grabbed it and violently jumped down the ladder. I ran downstairs to the kitchen, my discovery in my shaking, sweaty hands. I slammed the box down on the table, a bitter tear escaping my eye. I looked expectantly at my mother. The expression of shame on her face told me more than her words ever could. I turned away in disgust and ran up to my sanctuary. In the box were 18 letters, each letter in scrawled, shaky scribble. Each letter addressed the very same way, to my little princess. Each dated the exact same day with a different year, 13th of September, my birthday. Each signed, Daddy. I made a futile attempt to bite back tears as I read each letter. They were vague, they all asked one thing, when can I see you princess? The more the letters that I read, the more the jumbled up jigsaw in my head became clear. It all made sense. The next morning, my mother and I sat down. We had a long, heated discussion. After what felt like an eternity, we finally agreed. After 18 years of wishing and waiting, I would finally meet the man I had dreamt about my entire life. I would finally meet the man who left me before I was even capable of saying goodbye. I would finally be reunited with my father. My mother dropped me off at the gates. She wasn't ready to see him or forgive him yet, but I, on the other hand, lusted for answers. I had learned one thing from those letters. This man is no royalty. I went through security. The whole process was so intimidating. The walls were colourless. The atmosphere was like that of a funeral. The air was filled with despair and oozed of sorrow. The prison guards frowned at me. They looked at me like I was scum, like a fresh piece of chewing gum on their newly polished shoes. I gulped. The strong stench of sweat hit me as soon as I finished the security checks. I reverted back to being a child. Why was I here? Was I doing the right thing? Taking a deep breath, I followed the guard. The walk to meet my father was perhaps the longest two minutes of my life. With each passing cell, I grew more and more anxious. Then I saw him. After 18 years, the moment had arrived. I sat down opposite him. My king, my hero, was here. He was the opposite to how I imagined. He was balding, heavy and severe looking. His eyes were grey and misty. They were dead. I couldn't look him in the eye. He smiled at me with rotten teeth. Why couldn't I travel back to a time when I meant something to my father? I looked up. It was in that moment that I realized the extent of what this stranger had done to me. i had waited my whole life to reunite with the man who picked his precious pills over his pretty princess. While every inch of my body ached to leave, My remaining heartstrings forced me to stay. He told me everything, his first arrest for possession when I was only two days old. From there he spiralled out of control. He'd been in and out of this prison ever since. In a sad sort of way this monotonous miserable metal cage had become his home. I left the prison two hours after I first arrived. The sun was beaming on my face as I walked to the car. I felt like all the mist in my head cleared and I felt completely at ease. I threw my arms around my mother and inhaled her Chanel perfume sharply. The car journey in total silence, other than the steady beat of the radio. The dots had finally connected. Reuniting with my father had made me stronger. Childhood innocence eventually turns to naivety, and I thanked my father for helping me realise that. Reuniting my father again made me realise something important. I don't need a king. The Queen has been ruling my kingdom my entire life, and she's done a pretty good job. The underappreciated, true ruler in my life, my mother. Maybe my reunion wasn't how I imagined it to be, but then again, in life, what is? Not all princesses are damsels in distress, and I'm proud to say that my mother has made me the independent princess that I am today.
1: I we'll go to our poet's corner and see what they have to offer.
5: Sounds like a plan. Hi Cara, what have you got for us? Hi Leah, as always I have a huge amount of poems to try fit into the programme. And our first poem is a somewhat scary little offering from the Donahue's Community School Donahue. Nothing is free by Craig Nobody Nobody's free when they're with me. They'll be with me for eternity. I will watch them day after day. Every night they will pray. They'll be scared for life and full of fright.
0: I'll keep on haunting them night after night.
6: Very scary. I think we'll go for something lighter this time around.
0: This next poem comes in from Channel College and is quite beautiful. Beyond the Stars by Adam Berrigan. My heart's no longer a heart of love, just an organ pumping blood. I pretend to stand up strong, but inside it's all gone wrong. People ask, why don't you cry? Because when I do, I feel I'll die. You can say that she's not far, but I know she's beyond the stars. I just want to have her back, to hear her laugh and have the crack. Why does life fly by so fast? Try to reach, but you can't touch the past. We are going back to the Studio tree for some more stories. Thanks, Mila. We're sticking with the seasons with
2: this
7: story from Manor House Rohini. Hallows Eve Milestones by Maeve Keating. Jasmine was five years old when she first went trick-or-treating. She was dressed as a pumpkin, with a little pumpkin bucket. She got a small amount of sweets, which got eaten within a week, but was too young to see the fireworks, in case she got scared, or the bonfire, in case she fell in. She was seven when she was first brought to the fireworks and bonfire. The fireworks were beautiful, bright colours lighting up the dark sky, and she loved the bonfire, its warmth seeming to caress her and the flames dancing higher and higher. She was 14 when she went to her first memorable Halloween disco. However, unfortunately, the reasons it was memorable were the same ones as made it miserable. Her boyfriend kissed the girl with the silky looking black hair and they subsequently broke up and someone spilled their drink on her favourite orange top. Her best friend waited with her by the door until her mum arrived to pick her up and she went home in tears, her night ruined. She was 23 when she had her first Halloween after she moved out. Her decorations were slightly lacklustre, but she had an impressive array of sweets to pick from, so the kids went away happy. She was 35 when she had her first Halloween after she was married. Not too much changed, except they took shifts at the door with the sugar, and their array was wholly less impressive than the first year. She was 39 when she had her first Halloween with a child, a three-month-old daughter called Cherry. They stopped giving out sweets earlier than they used to on account of the sleeping baby, But otherwise it was largely the same. She was 44 when she first had to bring Cherry out trick-or-treating. It seemed like it wasn't so long ago that she was five herself, pouting just like Cherry when she was told, no, you're too young to see the fireworks and the bonfire. She was 55 when she let Cherry go trick-or-treating without an adult. They took turns answering the door to the kids with the bags and the buckets. She went to bed not long after Cherry. She was 65 when she had her first Halloween without her child again. Other than answering the door to the kids looking for sugar, neither of them moved from the sitting room that evening until they went to bed. She was 74 when she had her first Halloween with grandchildren. That was when she started feeling old, because grandchildren, but Halloween was fun again and that was good. She was 89 when she had her last Halloween. She saw the fireworks and the bonfire one last time, at least. She had made her peace, and she was happy.
1: Do you like Halloween, Leah?
7: I love freaking out all my friends with scary
2: costumes and watching the fireworks display. What about you?
1: I love taking my niece out to get her candy.
2: Back to work, and we're off to St Aidan's CBS for our next story.
8: It was going to be the best weekend ever. Bye, Darshvagis. Ring, ring. Sounds the alarm clock. It was only five in the morning. I was wondering why the alarm was set so early. In a flash, I remembered that today was the day I was waiting for. I was going to beautiful, sunny Hawaii. All that schoolwork had finally paid off. Hours of sums and poetic terms. Now relaxation on the beach. I jumped out of my bed and ran into the bathroom to get ready. The flight was in two hours time. I got dressed and began packing my backpack. I was going to an adventure park in Hawaii where I had to set up camp and survive in the wilderness for three days with a group of locals. I could bring a maximum of five items to help me, excluding food. I set out looking for my things in my jungle of a bedroom. It looked like a bomb had exploded in Toys R Us. I found a set of ropes and figured they would be handy. A pocket knife, a compass, and a map of the jungle. I was in the airplane. It was a great experience. I felt like a majestic eagle, soaring through the heaven's gates. Beep, 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 sounded the airplane, and the pilot announced to fasten your seatbelts because there was going to be an emergency landing. I closed my eyes tightly. Three hours later, I opened my eyes. I was on an island. I don't know where I am or where everyone else is. I stood there in utter shock and thought things through. If I was going to survive, I better begin as soon as possible. I found my backpack and set off into the jungle in search for resources. I found a tree that was tall enough and had fruit growing on top of it. I set off climbing it and when I reached the top, I collected the fruit and used the leaves as a blanket. I couldn't get to sleep as so many things were going through my head. It was dawn, and it was very misty. I woke up to see the sun rising in the horizon. It was a beautiful moment until I realized where I was and recalled the memories of yesterday. I got down off the tree and set out looking for a sign that showed me the way. After walking a long time, about three hours I recall, I find a gate around an old building. As I stepped in, I feel a chill run down my spine, as if this place was a bad idea. I saw a board on the building saying, restricted area, but I ignored it and went in anyway. I was surrounded by tanks filled with fish, snakes and a lot of other animals that I have never seen. As I walked into a room, I saw a giant enclosure. I walked towards the glass. As I touched the glass, a giant hybrid of a human, snake and fish jumped towards me with its hungry eyes. I jumped backwards and began to run. I heard a cry behind me and the glass cracked. I ran to a helipod where I meet a man who tells me to jump into his helicopter. I jump in and we set off. I see the hybrid roaring in anger below me. I fall asleep. The next day, I find myself in my bed. I check the date and time. I am shocked. It was all a dream. Or was it? The end.
6: Great stuff. More poems? I think so. Thanks, Leah. This poem is written by a pupil from Chanel College. The Worried Veteran by Owen Campbell Hurt veterans wheel, walk, limp around In the ragged house to which they are bound This stench, it's inhumane Memories of war still fuming Men scream, they shout Trying to save a friend Too late now, of course At their bitter end he cries and weeps All night long, croaking out the old war songs
5: we're going back to my school, Our Lady of Mercy College Beaumont, for a poem on Skilgit. On Bea, Le, is even Lum on Bea. Ta Gok Sort Kunit, Imma Hok Leskitche. Ishtak August Gok Sort Milshan. Glossary August torde in Akale, mansion Nihin. Ishtak i am going Shikim Fjol, August mm-hmm. Muhil. Mm-hmm. Tame Kugerokt Egg, Ishtokt, Lemichol. It's not imagine It's back to Leah and Lawrence for some more stories.
1: Thanks, Skyer. It was really great to get to hear poems and stories as well the series.
2: My school, Saint Mary's Holy Faith Secondary School, cluster sends us our next story, "The Road of Hell's Dark"
9: by Ava Kane. Rain pounded against the window, as if it yearned to be in the room. Tegan looked at the rain wistfully, wishing she could be run outside, but no, she was in a maths room. It was a dank little room with walls decorated with posters, depicting various ways to solve different mathematical equations. The teacher, Mr. Timmons, paced through the aisles of desks, his reading glasses propped onto his graying hair, his eyes squinting at every piece of homework. He finally looked at Tegan's, and as he signed her copy, he said, you never seem to get anything wrong. Do you? She shrugged. Conversation with teachers, let alone anyone, wasn't her thing. Mr. Timmins moved on to the girl in front of Tegan, a polar opposite of herself. While Tegan had straight, black hair with sallow skin and piercing bright blue eyes, the girl in front of her, Quinn, had corkscrew blonde curls with pale skin and dull grey eyes. In school, everybody thought she was the perfect girl, but whenever Tegan looked at her, All she could see was a self-conscious, nervous girl hiding behind a fake smile. Tegan was snapped back to reality as her maths teacher yelled at Quinn. No homework? The road ahead is dark for you if you don't start doing it. As he wrote out a detention slip, Quinn stared at her feet. Tegan's mind wandered. That's a ridiculous saying. Isn't the road ahead dark for everyone? Tegan knew the phrase meant that Quinn's future wasn't looking great. But who knows? She could become a world-famous scientist or an amazing author. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future, for goodness sake, she thought. Mr. Timmins handed Quinn the note, who quickly shoved it into her journal, too upset and embarrassed to look at it. Tegan pitied her. Sure, she didn't like her, but she certainly didn't want her to be upset. Tegan realized, like a eureka moment, that all that matters is the part of the road we are on now. And as soon as it is over, you continue walking along your road, leaving that part of the road behind. People may not know what is in the dark, but they will walk into it, enjoying the rush of adrenaline from the unknown. At least, that was what Tegan hoped would happen, especially for Quinn.
1: It's back to our Boat's Corner for our last batch of poems for today.
8: Love on Money by Chloe Rushmere. Love is a human nature, something you can't buy. Money is just a piece of paper, for that is no lie. Love is a standing, money is materialistic love is made from mutual money drives people ballistic true love has no bounds you know where it starts and where it ends when you run out of money you don't know what you have to mend love is undeniable yet filled with flaw money is material that brings out even the nicest
5: person's claws love or money is a party to choose, but which one would you rather lose icarus by libby sedwick Although I myself am a terrible thing, I cannot understand why you would think the same. I suppose we are both, as the moth is the flame, drawn to that burning wanting its cares. And I regrettably understand the way we are, you and I. But though we are cut from the same cloth, or fashioned to seem so, that does not mean that we are the same thing. Those poems are really brilliant.
1: They are, but they bring us to the last story of the day. This week's feature story comes from the Donahue's Community School.
0: Don't Give Up by Fionn, read by Mila Rodriguez. I was running. I could feel the burning feeling in the back of my legs, then pop. My knee buckled. The other guy grabbed the ball and they scored. Damn, I was really hoping to put out all of the stops today. The selectors for the Dublin team were out to have a look and I had to be stretched off. I had waited for that moment for so long and just when I get it, it's taken away from me. I was devastated. I really wanted to cry, but I knew it wouldn't look cool in front of the other lads, so I held it in. When I tried to stand, I couldn't. I knew something bad had happened. They took me to the hospital in an ambulance. They say I did a damage to a ligament at the back of my knee, and I couldn't play for at least six months. All of my hopes for playing for Dublin were shattered. I had to have a big operation, and I was on crutches for ages. My team were really sound about it and eventually I accepted that I couldn't play. My best friend, Jack, got accepted on the team, so I went out and supported all of his games. He was brilliant. As soon as I got back on my feet again, I was back on the pitch. This year, I'm going to make it. I'm not going to give up.
2: Unfortunately, that's all we have for you today. I hope we got to your story or poem. If we didn't, there's always next week.
1: Did you enjoy presenting the show today, Leah?
2: Yeah, it was great, Crack. Did you?
1: Yeah, it's a great experience. Don't forget to check out the Near FM website for full details and the podcast of the program.
2: We hoped you enjoyed today's program,
1: and we'll join us at the same time next week on Telling Tales broadcast here on Near FM.
6: Today's Telling Tales program was produced by Anda M Roach. Our BC is Miller Rodriguez, and the series is a Pearlman Media production for Near FM.
2: So, from myself, Lee Heatley,
6: and myself,
1: Lawrence Gork. Until, Until next, next week, week Slang
6: This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.